And here we are again, back for another week of regulatory affairs with MLEX's crack team of reporters around the globe. My name is James Paniki from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team, and it's an honour to be in your feed once again. And buckle up, because we have some very big stories for you this week. In just under 10 minutes from now, we'll ask ourselves just how the alleged $35 billion fraud and racketeering case involving those behind US investment firm Arkegos came about. We'll also examine the regulatory blind spot that allowed it all to happen. Neil Rowland will join us from Washington DC to give us the lowdown. But first up today, we return to the question of Giphy, the online database containing GIFs, which have now become the must-use visual aids for any social media posting. Whether you pronounce them GIFs or GIFs doesn't really matter. What's important is that the UK Competition and Markets Authority has withheld approval of Meta's acquisition of Giphy, bucking the regulatory trend in other jurisdictions where the deal was given the green light. There's just one problem, though. Meta's acquisition of Giphy is a done deal. It's over. And that's why there is so much at stake in the court hearings now underway in London. We're trying to find out whether the eggs can indeed be unscrambled should the CMA win the day. So recently, all eyes have been on the UK Competition Appeal Tribunal, where it's all unfolding. And luckily for us, our senior correspondent, Victoria Ibitoye, is in London and has been following the case for us. So, uh, Victoria, tell me about Meta's dispute with the CMA. What do we need to know? Yes, so last week was the culmination of months of wrangling and back and forth between the CMA um, and Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook. Um, And essentially the dispute stems from the CMA's prohibition of Meta's acquisition of Giphy, which is a platform that runs these sort of looping short video loops that you can sort of use on messages and use on social media. Um, But essentially the CMA blocked that deal uh, in November um, over fears that Meta's uh, acquisition could reduce competition um, between social media platforms that actually rely on Giphy um, and the gifts that they supply on their own services. And also it was concerned that um, the the acquisition had removed a potential challenger in the display advertising market. Um, Giphy had this very small, uh, in the CMA's view, growing digital advertising business, and it was looking at how to sort of monetize its gifts um, and sort of incorporate um, sort of pay partnerships. They called them paid alignment services uh, on its platform. Um, so yeah, so that's the heart of this dispute. Um, the decision was controversial because Giphy has very limited um, operations in the UK, um, but the deal and the block has had r- wider ramifications elsewhere. So Meta slash Facebook is obviously keen to argue that this uh, deal, which has already gone through, uh, should um, be upheld and shouldn't be opposed by the CMA. What were its key arguments? Meta had a, a number of key arguments. Um, interestingly enough, they didn't actually advance a jurisdiction argument, which was sort of the uh, the question on everyone's sort of minds about this deal, given Giphy's limited uh, jurisdiction in the UK. Um, but uh, they advanced about six, six grounds of appeal. Um, they all centred on... Um, various arguments about the CMA failing to use the the right standard to determine whether the deal was anti-competitive. Um, so these sort of included that 
the, the big one was actually that they believed, Meta believed, that the CMA couldn't find it probable that Giphy would become a competitor to Meta in the advertising market because there just was no evidence of that. And they said even if if the CMA had came to that conclusion, they needed to make reasonable inquiries beforehand. And by failing to do that, they'd sort of breached their, uh, the, the standard that was required of them. And they also advanced a number of arguments relating to sort of procedural fairness. Um, Meta claimed that they were a victim of procedural fairness because of... Um, the CMA excluded a number of, in their view, important information from its provisional report and its final report, um, which impacted their ap- ability, they claim, to properly defend themselves. And so, yeah, that was a big, big sort of question that was pushed by Meta was this argument of, um, you know, how how far can something be deemed confidential to the point where it sort of prevents a company from adequately defending itself? Okay, so this case is globally uh, significant. Obviously, there's a lot of interest on the part of people who want to understand what happens when a deal is approved in major significant jurisdictions, but not in others. Uh, So what were the key takeaways from the hearing? What have we learnt? Yeah, so I guess the key takeaway at the moment now is that from a UK standpoint, and potentially, uh, as you say, this deal could have wider ramifications elsewhere. Um, It's the question of, first, how much uh, discretion does the courts give to the CMA, the regulator in this this instance, Um, and also sort of where the line should be drawn between confidentiality and and withholding information and and whether actually right now the the bar is sort of tilted far too in favour of confidentiality and more should be disclosed during a review. So uh, a big sort of um, piece of news that came out um, during the course of this, this these hearings uh, was that, um, revealed by Meta actually, was that a little bit too late in the game actually, in their opinion, the CMA revealed that Snap, which owns Snapchat, had um, offered to buy Giphy's business. Um, So it was the alternative purchaser that sort of named and mentioned a number of times in the CMA's document. It had actually only offered 142 million for the business. Meta offered 315 million for the business. And they have essentially used that as an argument, as proof actually, of the fact that this uh, theory that the CMA has that uh, Giphy would emerge as this future you know, advertising competitor, uh, the paid alignment services were going to be the next big thing. It, it, they, they say that if that was the case, Snap would have offered a lot more for the business and they would have valued the business a lot higher than they did. Um, Snap actually ended up acquiring a competitor, uh, a Giphy competitor, Gifcat, uh, that summer of 2020, which Meta say the CMA knew all this time. So their argument is that actually, had they known that information earlier in the game, they would have been able to defend themselves more robustly because they believe that that's quite crucial um, in dispelling a lot of the um, a lot of the arguments that the CMA had about the merger. Um, but of course, the question is actually in, in the CMA's defence, they say actually they take their role of confidentiality really really seriously and there's a balance to be struck and if a company is not party to a um, hearing it's not their duty to disclose uh, things that they wouldn't ordinarily be disclosed in that sort of circumstance so so in terms of that sort of very legal nitty-gritty but actually potentially could be quite far-reaching if the court does actually decide that actually the 
confidentiality that is given a little bit too much weight in the UK and more should be disclosed, that could have um, wider ramifications for other emerging parties. And uh, look, just taking a few steps back, what is the overall significance of the hearing uh, and any future decision on this matter? What do we need to understand about it? Yeah, so this hearing is is very significant because it's the first time the CMA, uh, the UK's competition regulator, has actually blocked a big tech merger. So this is really the the test of whether the CMA got it right uh, and whether it can continue making the sort of decisions that it has has been making um, in terms of wider implications. I think for a while now, at least in the last two years or so, the CMA has been making a name for itself as a regulator that makes some of these controversial calls. Um, So I think, you know, it's sort of stuck its neck out here, being the first to, to block this deal. And I think a successful win for the CMA, a win in this instance, could actually give other competition regulators more confidence as well to sort of make similar decisions. Conversely, uh, should the court decide that actually the CMA, it, the CMA's handling this decision does infringe um, on you know fake Meta's procedural rights, and it is there are some bits that need to be looked at, it will be quashed and returned back to the CMA, and that could be potentially quite quite damning for the CMA uh, as a regulator. So already there's already a big question over sort of the future of their role in big tech scrutiny here in the UK, uh, some sort of policy decisions that we've been waiting for um, sort of aren't coming. So uh, the wider implications of this, not just for the CMA, but also sort of its role in regulating big tech um, is potentially quite, quite big, quite high. Victoria, it has been great talking to you. Thank you so much for following this story. Uh, Sending a GIF will never be the same again, so thanks Mm -hmm. again. Great. Thanks very much, James. Good to speak to you. Victoria Ibitoye is a London-based senior MNEX correspondent covering M&A and antitrust and will post a link to her most recent coverage of the Giffy hearing in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. And there's certainly plenty in there for you to enjoy if M&A is your jam. Our website address is as follows, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just head for the inconspicuously named News Hub for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. And this is indeed MLEX's weekly podcast. My name is James Paniki. Thank you for making it this far. And in just a tick, we'll dive into the complex world of capital management and ask how the reverberations of the Archegos collapse may be felt by shareholder activists. And it would be remiss of me not to remind you that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Now, last month in the US, Archegos owner Bill Huang and the firm's chief financial officer were indicted on fraud and racketeering charges and then arrested – They are alleged to have manipulated stock prices and defrauded major Wall Street banks. According to prosecutors, Huang's wealth swelled from 1.5 billion to 35 billion US dollars during the previous year's scheme before the firm collapsed. Of course, when something like this happens, regulators inevitably get involved, the soul searching begins, and that response is proving somewhat problematic. Neil Rowland is our 
award-winning senior financial services reporter. He works out of our DC offices, and I'm pleased to say that he joins me right now. So, uh, Neil, walk me through this very slowly. Firstly, what kind of firm is Archegos, and who is Bill Huang? Bill Wang is a so-called tiger cub. He was a disciple of the hedge fund titan, Julian Robertson, in the 1990s with Cap, uh, Tiger Management. He broke away, uh, formed his own hedge fund, Tiger Asia, which got into hot water. And in 2012, it was, he was indicted uh, for a fraud on uh, insider trading ended up paying $44 million in a related civil lawsuit. He moved shortly after to Greener Pastures, formed his own family investment fund, Archegos, based in New York, which, you know, family funds are unregulated largely, and they invest your own money, family money. He had over a billion dollars to play with. And Archegos prospered. They thrived. According to uh, regulators, they grew from $1.5 billion to $35 billion over just a one-year period before it collapsed in 2021. Now, what did the Justice Department, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, what did all of those agencies accuse the company of doing? Well, they're charged, as is Wang and his CFO, with uh, defrauding banks and racketeering. And the allegations are as this. There are three main parties here. The investment fund, Archegos, banks like Credit Suisse, Nomura, Morgan Stanley and UPS, and the companies themselves like Viacom, CBS, Discovery, and some Chinese tech and education stocks. And it's the banks that actually own the shares in the companies. So what's Archegos's connection to the companies? They were linked through the banks to the companies without owning any of the company stocks. But Archegos were exposed to the company shares. When the company shares went up, they benefited as the banks did. When the company stocks went down, they lost. They took a hit just as the banks did. How were they all knit together? through this instrument called security-based swaps, or in this case, equity-based swaps, a form of derivative contracts in which were underpinned by the stocks. Now, these are bets. Wang and Archegos placed bets through these derivatives on the direction of the stocks, and they took on a lot of debt. The banks loaned them a ton of money to bet on these stocks, and they did very well for a while. But when the stocks went down, the banks, seeing that they were taking a hit, put margin calls on uh, Archegos, which Archegos couldn't meet. 
they didn't have enough money to meet these margin calls. And Archegos eventually folded underneath all of that. So how did Archegos and Huang manage to pull this off? How did it, uh, how did it all happen? Well, there are two obstacles they had to get around. And as you can tell from Wang's history, he knew the market and how to maneuver it. Now, the SEC has disclosure requirements. When you own uh, enough of a company's stock, when you cross that threshold, you have to disclose your ownership. But remember, uh, Archegos never actually owned the stock. It was the banks that owned the stock. They were exposed. Archegos was exposed to the ups and downs of the stock, but they didn't actually own it. Also, the bank's risk management, if they saw that Archegos was a risky prospect for them to continue to be involved with in these contracts, they would put margin calls. However, here's how Archegos maneuvered around that. They concentrated all their holdings, all their stock exposure in just a few companies. As mentioned, Viacom, CBS, Discovery, and some Chinese stocks. But while spreading the risks, spreading the derivatives around many, many banks. So any individual bank had no insight into Archegos' overall risk. It's kind of like, you know, the Japanese fable of, you know, the blind men and the elephant. Any individual bank saw just one part of Archegos' exposure. So that's how they maneuvered around banks' risk management. Okay, so what are regulators doing to try to prevent a recurrence of this to to avoid another Archegos situation? Well, this falls under the SEC's bailiwick primarily because they're equity-based swaps. The Fed, which oversees the banks, did issue a reminder to the banks to follow due diligence here. Make sure they uh, check out their counterparties before taking them on. Make sure that the margins they were collecting was matching the investment fund's risk profile. But that, you know, that's not binding. It's a reminder. What the SEC has been doing is been trying to increase the transparency and disclosure, both of the swaps and of the companies by, you know, lowering thresholds, increasing the frequency. And this is being a frequency of disclosures. This is being done through the rulemaking process. And that raises the question of what is the outlook for these proposals? Do they stand a chance? Well, they stand a very good chance because this is such a high profile case that's gotten the attention of, you know, all the uh, financial regulators in the U.S. And Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, is a very aggressive regulator, but he's getting blowback from hedge funds. Why are the hedge funds fighting him on this? Interestingly, hedge fund activists, such as Elliott Management, owned by Paul Singer, are taking the view that the more they have to increase 
of the foothold that they get into a company, the less they're able to profit from that. And they take the position, backed up by some academics, that activists, shareholder activists, is a good thing and that there should be more of this. So they're, they're battling too much exposure of their positions. And that, will, that may be something the SEC has to tinker with, but I suspect in the end, there will be certainly a final rule or final rules in this area. Neil, it will be indeed very interesting to see how things pan out here. But uh, for now, thank you so much for uh, talking to us and thank you for taking such uh, interest in this story. Been a pleasure, James. Neil Rowland, an MLEX senior reporter based in our offices in Washington, D.C., and his analysis of this case and its regulatory fallout is well worth a read. And to do that, you'll need to go to mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com and click on the News Hub tab. You'll also find an archive of podcasts, which in my very humble opinion is worth checking out. And of course, subscribers have access to the full Archegos portfolio of work, and there's enough in that one to keep you very busy over this weekend. And by the way, in case you missed the reference to the blind men and the elephant parable, that's the one where a group of blind men is unfamiliar with an elephant. They each touch the animal in a different part of its body to describe it. But then, of course, when they come together to talk about the animal, each one of the blind men has a very different idea. So there you have it. Not sure what the elephant made of all of that. Let's hope it didn't spark an existential crisis. And alas, that's all we have time for in today's podcast. We'll be back in your feed next week at the same time. So I'm very hopeful that you'll be able to join me then. From me, James Paniki, and the entire team here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Music